You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Professor Morav is uh, a got her doctorate at Stanford, and sort of her early career uh, is places her at the center of Russian studies. I'm interested in Hebrew and Yiddish and uh, in the Russian Empire. Uh, and so for me, she contributes a lot. Um, and sort of within my own small world, which I think you guys are more big world, it's part of a post-Soviet scholarship on Soviet Jewry and its Russian and Yiddish writers. And the Cold War sort of bifurcated these Jews into two groups. Collaborators are a silent mass lacking agency. And its author's support of Soviet policy, including the suppression of Jewish religious practice, caused scholars to write off their work and not investigate its merit. Harriet's work humanizes Soviet Jews, gets at the complexity of their experience under Soviet rule, and offers careful and nuanced readings of Russian and Yiddish literary works by leading Soviet authors and reveals undeservedly buried treasures. This current, current underlies her recent translation of Judgment by David Bergelson, which she's teaching in one of my classes. And my students are actually very receptive of a very difficult novel. So that's a big contribution. But I think for most of you that sort of she has in importance to her work that very few people have understood, and to me that's very disappointing, and I'm going to try to present what I think that is. Um, it introduces a broader imperial Soviet approach to 20th century literature that pushes against a canon of Russian literature composed by ethnic Russians with a dash of variant ethnic flavors. Much as the integration of African American literature into the study of US literature has transformed scholars' understanding of the American canon and read, led to canonical reformulation, Harriet Morab's work pushes for a reorganization of the Russian literary canon. Rather than affording token positions to a few Russian Jewish writers like Babel, Mandelstam, and Brodsky, Morab points to the way that numerous Jews working in Russian and Yiddish make significant contributions to post-revolutionary Russian literature and move towards the heart of Soviet literature during the Great Patriotic War. Due to her serious engagement with Russian literary scholarship, cultural studies, and history, her claims should be investigated and engaged with. Questions need to be asked about the place of Russians, Jews, and other ethnic minorities in Soviet literature and post-Soviet literature in Russia. For example, from something that we were talking about, why does Vasily Grossman not deserve a place on MA reading lists, and why does Solzhenitsyn, even though he's an important guy, deserve such a central place in 20th century Russian literature? These are questions that need to be had, and sort of the literature can develop if people begin to think uh, more sophisticatedly about that. And I, I feel that her work, even when she's writing about Yiddish, has serious significance for thinking about Russian culture more generally. The uh, lecture we're about to hear is part of her movement into potentially a third stage, uh, which is her effort to have a more complex picture of events in Russian lands. And she told me she's currently, with all of her free time, um, working on her Ukrainian as she develops this project. And she's presenting a piece of it today. 
The book project of which this is part is called Archives of Violence, and it uses the Kiev District Commission for Relief to Victims of Pogroms from 1920 to 23, and selected literary works in Yiddish, Russian, and Ukrainian to focus on three questions. How archival accounts and literary works serve as forms of testimony to violence broadly understood, how the two accounts represent sexual violence, and how they integrate the problem of law and justice in the aftermath of violence. I am certain that it draws on earlier works such as Russians, Russia's legal fictions and music from a speeding train that addresses issues of testimony in relationship to Soviet Jewish responses to mass extermination of Jews during the Second World War. It is now my pleasure, I've concluded, uh, Harriet Marav. She doesn't uh, tell her title, so it is my pleasure to do it. It is entitled Archive of Violence, Neighbors, Strangers, and Creatures in Itzik Kipnis's Months and Days. Harriet Moran. Thank you. Thank you, Philip, for um, bringing me here, and thank you for such um, extraordinarily generous introduction. Um, and I should say from the outset, this is I'm at uh, the very um, beginning of, of my new project, and, and that's to me a very exciting phase because I get to not know stuff. Um, and you get to know more about the stuff than, than I do. So that's, that's a really, um, that's, an in, that's an enjoyable um, moment. So um, I hope I figure out how to, how to do this properly. So this is the author, um, it's a Kipnis. He's probably um, in his uh, mid 30s in, in this. I'm going to just. This is the book that I'm going to talk about, Chadoshim um, Teg, Months and Days, originally published in Yiddish in 1926. It was translated into Russian and was also uh, published in, in Russian. And this is, this is the opening of the novel, Ichun um, Buzi. Buzi is um, the name of uh, the fictitious character uh, in the novel, the narrator, the name of his wife, Buzi. And it also happens to be the real life name of the real Itzik Kipnis's first wife. So um, I guess I should have put the English and read the Yiddish, but I did it backwards. So I'm going to read the English. Um, so this, and this is my translation. This book has not been translated into English yet. Here we go. 2,000 days passed since then, 2,000 days and 2,000 nights. Dazed like polished brass discs shining in the sun and nights like sated deer stock still for hours. Or maybe the opposite, days like foreheads bruised and broken and nights like cups of oleum tipped onto animal skins, poisonous sulfuric acid that flows, burns, and brings death. In any case, the first thousand days and nights were like that. And before then, it was summer. Summer with blossoming days like poppies in June. I had just gotten married. This passage opens Itzik Kipnis's 1926 Yiddish novel, Months and Days, a chronicle. Hadoshim unteg a chronic. As the passage suggests, the novel chronicles violence and desire by intertwining two incommensurable stories. The author's honeymoon the summer with its blossoming days in the passage, and the 1919 pogroms in Ovruch and Slavyeshna, the nights like sulfuric acid or like oleum, 
Um, these are two small towns. Uh, Ovruch is 119 miles northwest of Kiev. It's right at the Belarusian um, border. Kipnis's mother-in-law and two of her children were killed in the pogrom. His first wife, Buzi, pregnant at the time, later died of typhus after giving birth to their daughter. Kipnis names the names of victims and perpetrators, lamenting the first and calling for revenge against the second. And yet, in a postscript to the novel, he comments on the, quote, strangeness of seeing orphaned children victims of pogrom violence and its retribution eating together at feeding stations. And this is the image that's on the poster, which I will show later in the talk. Quote, it was a bit strange for the grown-ups to contemplate this. Indeed, even very strange. Kipnis's narrative makes concrete the strangeness of world-destroying violence and world-remaking care. And that's what I want to explore today with you, the strangeness of world-destroying violence and the concomitant strangeness of world-remaking care. So Kipnis was born in Slavyechna, Ukraine in 1896. He worked as a leather tanner, uh, and that's where he gets the image of the oleum, of the sulfuric acid, because that's what was used to process animal hides. The Leather Workers Union sent him to Kiev to study in 1920. Months and Days was the first work for which Kipnis received significant critical attention. He was widely known as a children's author in both Yiddish and in Russian translation. And here's Fairy Tales for Children, The Bear Went Flying, Medvyed Vital. Uh, he returned to the theme of pogroms in Slavyechna and its consequences in many of his later works, uh, including work that he wrote after World War II. His praise of the Jewish star as an object of pride and the general, against the uh, background of the general anti-Jewish turn at the end of World War II in the Soviet Union led to his arrest in 1949. The interrogators brought up the charge that his early work, Months and Days, was, quote, too nationalistic. Uh, he spent seven years in the Gulag and was rehabilitated in 1956. He died in Kiev in 1974. So my new project, Archive of Violence, The Witness Literature of the Russian Civil War, although I'm really not sure about that title, explores the strangeness of neighborly relations enacted in violence and in the mitigation um, of violence. And what I'm going to do um, with you today is look at a few strange moments in the artistic text that we have before us in months and days um, and I'm going to use a theoretical point of departure that might at first seem a little out there, but I, I actually think fairly rapidly I can convince you that it's not so strange. And this is Eric Santner's concept of creaturely life. Eric Santner's books are about biopolitics, sovereignty, and the relations between human <laughs> beings caught in um, the Agambenian sort of state of exception. So creatureliness is a condition proximate to animal life, a subjection to power that takes place not only in the state of exception, hyperlegality, as in Hitler's Germany, but also, as I argue, when law and social meaning collapse, um, hypolegality, as was the case in Ukraine in 1919. I use Sandner, and not the more well-known Agamben, because Santner offers an alternative to the condition of bare life theorized by Agamben, 
um, the conditions of pogrom violence are not the same as the conditions of a death camp. There was no overarching genocidal policy in the Russian um, Civil War. And, and more importantly, Santner is interested in the potential for intervention in creatureliness, mitigation of violence, and not at some metaphysically remote limit case as in Agamben's Musulman, but sort of in the here and now as the violence is happening. Approximately 100,000 Jews were killed in the aftermath of the 1917 Russian Revolution. Some regions saw the complete decimation of their Jewish populations. Warring state and non-state armies, gangs, criminals, individuals, uh, resistors, monarchists, anarchists, perpetuated violence in what has been called the shatter zone of empires, both in the name of the new Soviet state and resisting it. The rapid succession of five different governments in Ukraine from 1917 to 1919 created conditions for total lawlessness, allowing for particularly vicious forms of interethnic violence. Um, this period of time has received far less attention than the Holocaust, and as I am speaking, I know a couple of historians who are finishing up their books on this period. Um, there is a huge body of literary work in Yiddish and in Russian that was written in response to these events. There's a huge archival corpus. We, corpus, we at Illinois have the Kiev District Commission for Relief to Pogrom Victims. It's 42 boxes of microfilm. I don't think I'll ever um, get to it all, even if I had an army of research assistants, which I don't. So um, I'm interested also in the relationship between literary fiction and documentation, or literary fiction and, and testimony, uh, witness, witness documents. Because violating literary convention, Kipnis actually names real live victims in his novel. I found the same names in the, in the archive that I just mentioned. So um, Kipnis describes a woman maddened by grief who wanders through the shtetl singing a strange dirge about her dead husband, um, David Frank. And um, I'm not smart enough to use the device, so here we go. And here he is, David uh, Yevsinievich Frank, age 28, occupation um, tailor, uh, number of, of children, and, and so on and so forth. So this is a real person. Now usually, if you know Russian literature, you never name names. You never even name a city. It's every, every Russian novel takes place in the town of N. Uh, so this is kind of wild stuff. Um, and and I, I actually didn't quite know what to make of it, and I sort of still don't. So Kipnis also chronicles the documentary process itself by mentioning an unfamiliar young man who's walking around the shtetl taking notes, which is, is, is really interesting. So, in 1926, the literary critic um, Isaac Nusinov, who was executed in 1952, called Kipnis's novel a rare witness, back to the Aedis, if you were at my lecture the other day, a rare witness or Aedis to the tragedy of 1919. And my claim in the project as a whole that I want to make is that the narrative, poetic, documentary, and emotional qualities of the literary works and archival texts that are my focus make them among the most important witness books of the 20th century, and yet they are barely read or known today. So um, what, what could be the force 
propelling Kipnitz to name names, give addresses, give dates. And one of the contexts for this comes from the Russian side of the house. And this is what's known as the factography movement. And this was in the 1920s. Proponents of the new literature of fact said, you know, we are creating a new, better revolutionary world here in Soviet Russia, and we are going to document how this is taking place. And the new Soviet government sent um, um, brigades of visual artists and literary authors to new construction sites, to, to uh, factories, to agricultural settlements. And the idea of factography was it doesn't matter if it's a positive fact or a negative fact. What we're depicting here in our verbal snapshots or ochirki of the new life, we're depicting dynamism and change. We're showing a pathway to the, a better future. Um, so there, that was one impulse, factography. What was another context for this sort of documentation that Kipnis uses in his novel? Jews, since the turn of the 20th century, sought to document and historicize their existence in ways they had never done before. You may be familiar with the famous Russian Jewish historian Shimon Dubnov's alleged cry as he, he was being taken away uh, by the Nazis, Jews write your history. But before Dubnov said, Jews write your history, Dubnov in the early 1900s said, Jews write your ethnography. Jews go and write down who, who you are. And in fact, the Jewish Ethnographical Historical Society sent the poet Chaim Nachman Bialik to the pogrom site in Kishinev in 1903. And he wrote many, many notebooks and documents about the murders and rapes that took place there. But the thing he published was a very, different, very different sort of thing. He published a narrative poem called In the City of the Slaughter, in which he excoriated Jews for their passivity and failure to respond to the violence. And he talks about the sense of Jewish shame. And it's interesting that Kipnis also speaks of his own terrible feeling of shame, Harpa, as, as someone who sort of stood by helplessly as, as people were being killed and women were being uh, raped. Um, in 1921, the information, and all these titles of all these organizations are very long, so bear with me. The Information and Statistical Division of the Jewish Public Committee for Assisting Pogrom Victims considered a proposal from the eminent Yiddish poet David Hofstein to employ literary artists to document the pogroms in Ukraine. Hofstein himself was a noted literary artist, and here's the front cover of this wonderful and disturbing poem cycle he wrote with illustrations by Mark Chagall called Tvoyer, or Sorrow, and um, it was published in 1922, and down here, this is the, the reish, the, the R sound, and it's in the shape of the ram's horn, the shofar, that calls Jews to prayer on the day of remembrance. But at this meeting of, on September 16th in 1921, Hofstein wasn't being a poet. He was being an activist, and he said, look, why don't we send Jewish authors out to their native shtetls to write about what happened there, quote, it could take the form of a chronicle, which should contain not only the factual side, 
of the pogroms, but also a description. The chronicles could be composed in the form of diaries or memoirs. And as we recall, the word chronicle appears in the subtitle of, Hof of Hofstein's, of Kipnis's novel. So it seems very likely that Kipnis, who was Hofstein's protege, actually thought of himself as personally answering the call that Hofstein um, issued to um, uh, go back and document what happened. And this document is a document that is a transcript of the uh, proceedings of the September 16th, 1921 meeting. And, and here's about uh, the proposition or the proposal uh, by the Hofstein to, co to collect and, and compile chronicles of the locations that had suffered from the pogroms. Um, um, the opening lines of Kipnis's poem that talk about brass discs shining in the sun may be an indirect allusion to something Hofstein himself had written. He wrote about the blinding glare of day as, quote, the sun dances with a thousand burning discs. So I'm, I'm seeing here a kind of call and response between <coughs> Hofstein and his protege, Kipnis, and wh why is this important? Because when we read about witness literature and testimony today, especially from important theoreticians of this topic, they often talk about the important relationship that the witness produces in relation to another, to a listener. So the object or the product of witnessing isn't so much as the truth of what happened as the relationship between the speaker and, and the listener. And, and Maxime has written a very interesting article uh, about this, which I can direct you to later. So what I'm trying to say is that this relationship was there at the, at the get-go in the very constitution of, of Kipnis's uh, uh, text. So let's, let's go back to that text and, and let's um, find out more about what life was like in the shtetl of Slavyechna uh, before the um, pogrom of 1919. So this is a not very good map showing Ovruj and Slavyechna is, is around uh, 20 miles um, east and south of it. I just could not find a map that put all the places together in the way that I wanted. The line above is, Be is Belarus, so we're in northwestern Ukraine. This was a kind of a poverty-stricken place. It was tiny. Um, th there were only 1,400 or so inhabitants of this town in 1919, around 900 of which were, were Jewish. Um, everybody was pretty poor. Uh, the town had a mill, several tanneries, a slaughterhouse, a church, two Jewish cemeteries. One of the reasons for Jewish impoverishment was immigration to the United States. Husbands left women and children behind. Kipnis's mother-in-law had to travel to neighboring villages selling sort of pots and pans um, every day. That's how she supported um, uh, the family. Um, so there, this was not a town in which there were big displays of Jewish wealth. Um, unlike other towns, peasants would bring Jews potatoes, flour, honey, a calf, and Jews would provide processed animal hides, coats, and boots. Um, uh, Kipnis writes that before 1919, there was every indication that Jews and non-Jews would live well together until the Messiah came, which I think we have to take with a little bit of grain of salt. I think he's being a little um, ironic. They, they didn't live well, uh, and the Messiah didn't didn't come. So Kipnis, Kipnis <laughs> blames the eruption of violence in his native shtetl 
um, to the chief of police in the town, Marco Luchtmann, uh, and an individual named Kasinko, or Kasinko, in addition to peasants from the town and the surrounding region. Um, these names, Luchtmann and Kasinko, or Kasienko, appear in the archival documents um, as well. Um, uh, Kasienko was around 19 or 20. He was literate, which is kind of unusual. He worked for the food board. He didn't have any job for a while, and then he started working for the police. And he began making anti-Jewish statements, uh, saying that Jews, as Bolsheviks, were going to turn churches into synagogues, force peasants to marriage, to get married by rabbis, and, and, and also charging Jews with um, hoarding manufactured goods, especially salt, in order to fleece the peasants. And as we'll see, um, salt was a, was a flashpoint of violence in, in, in this account. So Kipnis describes. Um, the beginning of the, of the pogrom, it was on a Tuesday, the 17th of Tammuz, when the walls of Jerusalem were breached, Kipnis notes. Um, so he has that big Jewish, you know, that long durée of Jewish historical time that places events in a context of their biblical forerunners. Um, uh, Kipnis and his wife go to sleep in their clothes. They wake up. They rush to the garden. They, they, they sleep outside. They learn that people have been um, killed. Uh, one eyewitness reports 68 killed and 45 wounded. Other reports say more than 60 were killed and more than 100 uh, wounded. There are lots of theories about what led to anti-Jewish violence in Ukraine in this time period, significantly the violence um, of World War I, the forced requisitions of material goods, the summary executions conducted by different branches of the new Bolshevik uh, government, the precedent of anti-Semitism in the Russian Imperial Army, and the prolonged absence of a central authority in Ukraine, all, all were factors. Um, uh, my, my problem is, is that these explanations almost make it feel inevitable. You know, it, it, it had to happen, right? Uh, there was inequity, there was poverty, there was a new government that had promised land, peace and bread, you know, Lenin's April Theses, and it didn't happen. Instead, they, that very same government was taking, taking the land and, and taking the, the, the bread. So, okay, so violence, um, as, if it, as if it's natural. And I think writers like Kipnis, who says we could have lived together peacefully until the Messiah came, even though it's a little ironic, is kind of pushing against inevitability. And um, I, think, I think that's a good, a good attitude to take. And um, th that's, that's kind of what I'm interested in. I'm trying to find these moments where the predictable violence didn't happen. And, and, and you can find these moments in the archival record and in Kipnis's story. Just a tiny example from the archival record. Remember our guy, Kasinka, who turned out to be an anti-Jewish agitator and committed anti-Jewish violence? His mother sheltered Jewish refugees and, and took care of people. So it's like one family. So what? So the mother and the son, it's an interesting story. I can't give you the end of the story. I, that's why I'm working on Ukrainian, so I, could, you know, so I can go to regional archives and try to trace out the, the, the later part of the story. But now let me go back to biopolitics and Santner's concept of creaturely life. Um, Santner is not really unique in, in insisting that the human subject at the very beginning um, uh, is always at odds with itself, split by desires and fantasies and pleasures that somehow 
you can never claim as your own. We're always born into an already existing configuration of desires and, and fantasies. We, we inherit them in a way. Um, and one of Santner's um, source texts is the um, psycho, psychoanalyst Jean Laplanche, uh, who writes that human beings, other, unlike animals, have drives. And drives mimic and displace and denature um, instinct. And, and, and what Santner does is bring together political theory, biopower, and psychoanalytic theory. And, and what he says, ultimately, is that the baby at the breast, the political subject, uh, whether the ordinary person or the sovereign, are always displaced from themselves, always outside and in excess of their own proper position. There is no post-structuralist theorist, by the way, who doesn't say this, right? We're always outside of our own proper position. And we, we our subjectivity emerge, it emerges in an exchange between the inside and the outside, myself and another, on the border. Um, so um, I'm me, but then I'm not me. And I, I'm still myself, but I'm strange. And so let's go back to Kibnis. The non-Jewish neighbors that prevented Jews from leaving Slavyechna uh, during the pogrom knew, knew one another. And Kibnis says they changed. They were our own neighbors, but they, under, they had undergone some sort of transformation. Something happened to them. Um, uh, we knew them, but we, they, they didn't know us. So creature, creaturely life is a vulnerability to biopower, a condition wherein life and the flesh are the concern of politics. This is always the case, but Santner ascribes a heightened bipolitical intensity uh, to creaturely existence. Biopower arises in the political transition from the power of the monarch or the sovereign to the sovereignty of the people and the modern administrative state. And we don't need to be political scientists to understand that in 1917, this transition happened very quickly. The czar is assassinated. There's no more czar. Everybody becomes a sovereign. Everyone becomes king for a day. And perpetrators embraced the theatricality of their temporary royalty. And here's a picture of one. Um, this is Ataman Alexander Kozinzirka. And you can just tell, even though it's a bad image, that he's got a he's got attitude he's got a costume he's got the hat he's got he's got a look and this guy Kasinka whom I keep on mentioning named himself commissar of the Slavyechna insurgent army there was no such army there was no such rank so these people took the sort of theatrical appurtenances of power and attached themselves to their own person. And here we see the kind of strangeness of violence. You know, instead of just going out and murdering someone, you go out and murder someone wearing almost like fancy dress. Why, why do you need to do that? Uh, it's reported in, in several sources that Kozirka forced Jews to sing and dance and slap one another before he shot them. Right? So this is what I mean by kind of fantastical violence. This is not I mean, no violence is ordinary. But there is something like excessive and theatrical here, even um, grotesquely uh, uh, playful. Let me spend a moment. Am I out of time, like in five minutes or something? No. No. Okay. Phew. Okay. Sorry. I always lose my sense of time when I talk. Um, Kipnis himself, at this moment of his life, is also a person kind of living on a border or on an edge. 
He's just gotten married. The opening of the novel that I gave you, uh, unfortunately I gave it to in Yiddish, not English, it goes on to say that they were kind of drunk on passion, he and his wife. He said, if you walked into our room, you would become drunk with it too. They were in a constant state of, let's just call it lust. And, and everything he touches and every object in the room, he says, is infused, infused with this. So this is a heightened, super intense time in his life. And look at his job. He's a tanner. What do tanners do? I had a lot of time with Wikipedia on this one. You take an animal hide and you basically have to kill it because it's kind of still alive. It has a lot of stuff on it, um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of activity. And if you don't sort of kill it again with various chemicals, it'll just rot away. So you use oleum or sulfuric acid. You, you take the bark of oak trees and you soak the leather in this bark of, of oak trees until you so, sort of make it malleable. It's a very long, very dangerous process, uh, so, and a very stinky process. So Kipnis lives at the edge of town because that's where the tanneries are. They're at the edge of town because they smell so terrible. So he's kind of beyond himself, beside himself with desire for his new wife, and he lives sort of beyond the border of the town, and his work sort of takes us from animal, a living animal, to leather on that border beyond what is already um, dead. And as he recounts um, the processes and the murders and the violence, he also talks about how the boundary between uh, life and death itself was breached. Um, uh, people didn't know what was happening to them. People didn't understand uh, how to deal with, with the violence, and they were unprepared uh, for it. They, they couldn't figure out where to go. So here's a description of Hypnus worrying about where to sleep. Um, in English, something like, we were like creatures who at nightfall were abandoned and utterly helpless. Um, creatures. It's uh, was an ovent in nightfall in ganzen hefker, very important word, hefker on hill flows. Ownerless creatures. They're up for grabs. The word hefker means up for grabs. It designates an object that has no owner and therefore by law exempt from certain sort of taxes. Hefker de designates a category of lawness, lawlessness that's within the boundary of law. And I'm trying to sort of draw a connection between a Gombin's ban, individuals who are on the boundary, and the Jewish Talmudic notion of Hefker. And so far, my research has taken me to the point where the only reference of Hefker, that is to say ownerless or outside the law, is in relation to a woman. So the Talmud recounts an occasion of a woman who was a slave woman who is owned by two masters. It's kind of a strange example. One master said, go, you're free. And the other master said, no, you are not free. And so she's betwixt and between. She's half Hefker and half not. And people decided they could do whatever the hell they wanted to to her. In other words, they sexually abused her. And, and the authorities had to figure out a way to put her in some category or other so that she would not be this, this ownerless creature who could attract all kinds of lawless um, behavior. 
So the orderly distinctions between regular human existence within a structure of social recognition and boundedness and that which is outside the law, subject to violence, subject to I am mere material, you can do with me, I'm merely a biological, I'm a bunch of flesh, do with me whatever you want, all of that is happening um, during the uh, pogrom. Um, so how does Kipnis fare with dealing with the repercussions of this, of this uh, uh, violence. There's an, there's an example that goes back to what we saw earlier, uh, David Frank, uh, the, the tailor who was killed. He had a wife who saw him being killed and begged the pogrom perpetrators to kill her too, but they didn't. And she loses her mind and starts wandering through the shtetl singing this strange dirge. Of course, you all know David. She's like telling people, you all know David, and why don't you do something and help me? And, and Kipnis reports that his blood ran cold, and all he wanted to do was get out of there as, as quickly as he possibly could. She had lost her mind. She had become more creaturely than human, and he couldn't respond. And, and I, I believe that this must have been a real, a real event, because the husband... Uh, the killing of the husband is, is real. And I think that this lament turns the accusation not only against Kipnis but against us because when we read, and I'm very interested in the situation of reading, when I read a text and it says you, I think it's talking to me, actually. Of course, you knew. Like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing in response to this? Can I do anything? Let me give you another example of strangeness. Not the, stra the strange repercussions of violence. And this is an example of strangeness of neighborly care. So one of the nights of the pogrom, Itzik and his whole family are seeking shelter in non-Jewish houses. And they, they manage to be led into a courtyard of a non-Jewish family for, for a few hours. And an old woman comes out to greet them, and she's dressed very strangely. It sort of takes me back to my old interest in holy foolishness. She's not really dressed. She's wearing an apron in the front and an apron in the back. That's it. And, and she starts sort of muttering. And she says, what's going on, you know, with all you Jews and all these people? She's a non-Jew. And she wonders whether World War I played a role. Did the damn war so corrupt the people? Um, and she says, you Jews are guilty, too. It's not just my, uh, us non-Jews that have taken your stuff. You Jews are guilty because you hoarded salt. You hid salt, and you overcharged us um, for it. And that's why people got so angry at you. And you know, you're reading this, and you're thinking, oh my god, what's going to happen next? She goes in, and she comes out, and you think, is, you know, is she going to start punching people? And what she's done instead is she's brought out baked potatoes to feed the Jewish children. And we have to understand these are very poor people. Th this is not a wealthy area. She's not a wealthy woman. Um, so she, she complains about the Jews. She says, even animals are given salt, and you deprived us of what you give even animals. She goes back in, and she starts feeding people, which in my book is pretty strange. This whole miniature of the strange old woman could have ended very differently. She cries. She accuses. She laments, she justifies anger. The sequence could have been the prelude to more violence. Um, and, and the old woman herself is, is very strange. Her strange 
uh, dress and all of her actions uh, lead up to what we think is going to be more violence, but the continuum is broken. Uh, uh, violence does not lead to more violence here. Um, she interrupts the continuum. For most of the text, Kipnis describes his desire for revenge. He wonders at one point when Jews will get to go out and murder shikses, non-Jewish uh, women. Um, but even so, and there's a lot of anger that he expresses in, in the novel. He describes how Jewish revenge ended up killing this guy, Marko Luchtan, Kipnis's neighbor, who was taken outside the town limits and shot in broad daylight. And the bodies were brought back, and the women started crying. And then um, Kipnis ends with the postscript that I began with. Um, and I'll read more of it now. And, and this is the man who was just killed in an act of retribution. Marco had murdered Jews, and Jews murdered Marco. And the orphan children came running with their bowls to the kitchen. They didn't think about anything. They only lifted their eyes and mouths to their food. For the grown-ups, it was a strange sight to see. Indeed, a very strange sight. And, and this photograph is from the Jewish, Joint Jewish Distribution Committee, and it's somewhere like 1922 or so, and it's, it, it's taken sort of on the scene. So why is it so strange? I mean, I, I really started to think about it, and I don't think I've gotten to the bottom of it. Um, during pogrom violence, human beings lose their ordinary human qualities. The distinction between life and death vanishes. The living struggle to stay alive, sometimes by hiding among the dead and by pretending to be dead. This is not 1940s, this is 19-teens. The fundamental categories of experience seem to go up into smoke. Kipnis says, Tuesday was a day, and we, it seemed, were human beings. The affirmation of the day of the week and the self-affirmation of the creatures as human beings reflects, of course, radical doubt that either of these things um, is the case. Violence unmakes the world not only by physical violence, but by destruction of mental orientation and fundamental ways that we think. Kipnis describes the children almost like animals. Their mouths are piskalich, little snouts. Um, and there's something very strange, not only about the children, but the fact that there's orphans from enemies are now eating together. And for the grown-ups, it's a very um, strange um, sight. So in conclusion, what am I trying to suggest here? Um, I'm trying to make my own intervention, in a way, in the archive of violence that we have by examining works at the boundary between chronicle and fiction and in the aesthetic context of factography and the theoretical framework of creaturely life. Human beings are always beside themselves, and in the moment of historical upheaval, especially so. And I'm, I, I'm trying to understand the neighborly, intimate violence uh, characteristic of this period, and also add another dimension to the relationship of neighborly care. Both are strange. And I, I hope that, that having seen this analysis, the two incommensurable stories that we started with, Honeymoon in Violence, now sort of mesh together a little, little bit better. And my concluding thought is that literature, artistic literature, is uniquely suited to explore and explode the strange intersections of desire and violence. Thank you.